Hey, welcome to Conversations with my dear friend, Jeff Conway. My name is Susan. This is A Different Kind of Walk. Hello, friends. You are in for a real treat. In today's episode, Jeff and I get to chat with Debs Irwin, who works for Peace and Reconciliation in Northern Ireland. We talk a lot about the divide there between Catholics and Protestants, including some history, some definitions, and lots of stories. During the recording, I had some pretty major allergies, so you can expect to hear less from me this time. And I want to remind you that Jeff's neuromuscular disorder affects his speech, so you'll hear him correct himself a few times. And lastly, because of all the history involved, I wanted to keep our conversation all in one episode, which is why it's twice the length. So sit back, relax, and enjoy the episode. Hi, oh. Debs. Hi, how's it going? It's going well. Oh. I'm, I'm so privileged that I get to do a podcast with a rock star and, you know, rock star glasses. Oh. <laughs> so, yeah, somebody at the wedding yesterday called me Hunter Thompson. <laughs> I don't think I'm a renegade or anything, but yeah. Uh, yes, definitely a rebel. I think so. A little bit, you know, it's just the four in me that I'm wearing my rose-colored glasses. Um. To get us started, can you give us a little bit of background on who you are and what you're doing with your life now and why reconciliation is important to you, essentially? Um, sure. Yeah. So uh, that's a lot. But the first thing you need to say is, when did you and I meet? It's been almost 20 years. Yeah, I think, I think we first met in like 2006. Seven, I want to say, but I'm not sure. So I picked you up from the airport. You picked me up at the airport? Yeah, that's that's okay. where I first met you. So um, you met at the hotel. <laughs> but I'm much older than you are, so I can forget things easier. But I remember I remember sitting in some kind of tea place of the hotel and, and having to come. Maybe that was after. Yeah, maybe, maybe. Oh, did you pick me up from the hotel and take me to that hideous conference that I had to listen to people speak after not sleeping all night on a plane and then answer some questions as the American that was brought there and really wanting to um, release stuff from my stomach in a sick way because I was so nauseous instead of speaking in front of all these people. Yes, that was me. That, no split. Yeah, because we drove. That's right. We drove straight to that thing. What an awful thing to do to somebody. <laughs> um. So yeah. So my name is Deb Zerwin. I uh, live in Belfast, um, uh, in the north of Ireland or Northern Ireland. Um, it's a contested space. So both of those terms are kind of loaded terms. Um. Right. I am an outdoor loving, sea swimming, bookworm podcast addict. 
<laughs> uh, I've been involved in youth work for just about over 20 years. Um, started out in a lot of kind of faith-based youth work, kind of moved out of the kind of faith world of youth work specifically um, after some time, began to really focus on peacemaking kind of initiatives. Um, the last six years I've been self-employed. So I do some consultancy, mainly for different kinds of youth-focused organizations. So I do bits and pieces of research and evaluation and strategic development kind of stuff. But, so but yeah. give, give us one example of, um, give us an example of a project that you've done when you mean you're consulting with these different groups. Uh, well, right now I've just um, started up a, a new project with a colleague for the National Youth Council of Ireland. Um, and it's looking at the impact of the pandemic on the youth work sector ah. so um so yeah that's pretty interesting stuff and just recently i finished working with the irish traveler movement so irish travelers would be an, an ethnic minority group here um and i did some work helping them explore ways in which the voices of young travelers could be heard more more widely how they could be involved in decision making within traveler organizations but also within kind of mainstream youth organizations so yeah so that was a really nice piece of work so do. what do you mean travelers when you're saying that you're not talking about people that are on vacation no no I'm I suppose that you know traditionally they would have been maybe you know using caravans you know so that they would have moved around so I, I kind of a nomadic kind of people right. um well I didn't realize there would be a significant population in Northern Ireland yeah so well in in Ireland as a whole I think there would be maybe um it's somewhere in the region of 30 to 40,000 so it is quite a small kind of population it's like the inequalities are horrendous so a lot of the statistics are very poor in terms of kind of um like lower kind of life expectancy and, and all sorts of things so there's been a lot of discri discrimination and prejudice that um traveler communities have faced over a long period of time yeah. um and a lot of good work has kind of happened to um within those communities to to change that so yeah so in the simplest terms if you could describe for us because you even had to correct me a few times at first um, when I would blend Irish with Northern Irish with you know and what that meant and where the division was and just you know all kinds of challenges there and but if you could start in 1690 and give us um <laughs> you know but if you can just give folks that are listening in a little bit of history of of northern ireland particularly that helps us get to the point of why do we need to talk about catholic protestant reconciliation and how you have been involved in that sure um yeah it's not it's not an easy kind of a task um because a lot has happened in the last kind of 800 odd years okay so, yeah. 30 <laughs> seconds already 
<laughs> okay, I'll keep going. So um, uh, there have been a number of key moments in kind of history. Um, one kind of key period was the plantation of Ireland, which was 16th, 17th centuries. So a lot of land was given to English landlords. And then it there were primarily Scottish, also English tenants who settled them in, in Ireland and they displaced um, Irish people. And there was a particular, it would have been a particular concentration, particularly of Scottish settlers in the northeast of, of the island of Ireland. So that's a, a key moment. Um, and then there was a battle between uh, Catholic King James II and Protestant King William of Orange. And I suppose that's kind of where it's easy to kind of realise that the, the terms Catholic and Protestant aren't so much about religion, but it's much more to do with identity and power. And so Ireland was kind of strategically, geopolitically important at that point. But after that, you had the penal laws, which basically legitimised discrimination against Catholics, also discriminated against non-Anglicans um, because they weren't kind of part of hierarchies. So um, there, there was actually a rebellion, 1798, which brought together Catholics and Presbyterians. And so that was a kind of an anti-sectarian thing, but that was crushed by British militia. And um, so that was a rebellion against British rule of that Ulster plantation, the northern part of Ireland, which is now Northern Ireland that you're talking about. Yeah, against British rule and, and particularly because of those particular laws and, and how they discriminated against Catholic people and non-Anglicans. So 1800, there was like an official act of union between Britain and Ireland. All of Ireland? Yeah, all of Ireland. Okay. So that's where you would get the phrase, like if you look on a map, the the two kind of islands and there's obviously other islands it's called the British Isles so essentially Ireland was colonized by the British it was part of the British Empire the relationship wasn't really a great relationship there, there was a measure of autonomy for for the Irish in Ireland but in really the British were in control of things 1916 there was another rebellion and it failed it was also crushed but it led to um, wars of independence is, is how they're termed kind of after the first world war and then at that point 1921 was the creation of Northern Ireland and so that was uh, imposed a border um, so that's where the border kind of came from between North and South for the first time that was imposed but by the British. when you had the Republic of Ireland. Yeah. And Northern Ireland, which is yeah. on the same island, obviously. Yeah, that's right. So it was it was after that time that essentially the, the Republic of Ireland came into, into being. And um, so it had its kind of like full independence. Um, but because of the kind of plantation history and um, the dynamic in between North and South was that now you had a Protestant majority in Northern Ireland and a Catholic minority. But on the island of Ireland, you had a Protestant minority as a, as a whole, if, right. if you know what I mean. Uh -huh. So, but that, that's for, for Catholics in the North, they kind of felt severed from the South. And also there was a parliament in Northern Ireland, but it was really a Protestant state for a Protestant people. 
um, and that's how it would be kind of termed. So there, you then had an inbuilt majority of people who were unionist, who were pro-union with the United Kingdom. Um, and you had this Catholic nationalist minority who, right. who wanted to be part of Ireland, the Republic of Ireland. Um, so economically, in, in the North, things were dominated by the UK. So that created a lot of tension. There were a lot of inequalities, um, things like gerrymandering. For anyone who's like me and has forgotten their high school civics, Gerrymandering is a practice intended to establish an unfair political advantage for a particular party or group by manipulating the boundaries of electoral districts. It can be used to help or hinder a particular demographic based on things like religion, race, language, age, or any other separating factor. Gerrymandering is almost always considered a corruption of the democratic process. Um, And actually, we had a civil rights movement, which was inspired by the civil rights movement in your part of the world. Um, That led to unrest because unionists and loyalists, people who saw themselves as being loyal to the Queen um, of the United Kingdom, they felt threatened, they felt fear, and uh, that, that... they would be pushed aside or uh, whatever. And so, yeah, that ratcheted up a lot of the tensions and the troubles broke out in 1969. Which is calling, you know, the most hellish thing you've gone to a problem when really it was just atrocious, way past something that's just troubles. And so you had the main kind of actors in that were the British state. So you had the British army. You also had the RUC, the Royal Ulster constabulary which was the police force and it was dominated by protestants um, and then you had the irish republican army which was a um, militia group um, who and then you had uh, loyalist militia groups um, two main ones ubf uda and so they were the ira was you know started a bombing campaign against the british state you had um, loyalist paramilitaries who were trying to defend their communities against the IRA. And you had state forces who were then trying to obliterate the, the IRA. And um, so, and, and then, of course, you had ordinary civilians who got caught up in all of that. So we had over 3,700 deaths in 30 years, um, thousands more injured. You Most know, of those due to bombings? Uh, bombings, shootings. Um, yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah. So I, rem- I, don't, I don't remember if you're the one that, that told me this, but my first trip to Ireland was to Dublin. I sat next to a woman on the plane from Heathrow to Dublin and she said she had never met a Protestant in her life. This is a woman who'd lived in in Dublin most of her life, and she obviously traveled because she was on a plane coming from London. But, I mean, she was just shocked that she was meeting a a Protestant, and that was shocking to me. And I don't know if it was you or somebody else who said, uh, that woman's been around Protestants her whole life. She just didn't realize that they were three doors down from her or something because you didn't mix with those people in any 
kind of situation. You stayed with your Catholic friends or your Protestant friends, and that's a unique concept for many in the States. But then I think it might have been you that taught me there are three questions that you can ask somebody um, to find out if they're Catholic or Protestant. And the first one was, oh, what's your name? And 97% of the time, you know if they're Catholic or Protestant by their last name. Yeah, usually it doesn't even take three questions. Um, sometimes it can be accent. Um, oh, okay. And, and how you say things. But yeah, you can usually figure it out within five minutes. So, yeah. um, and it's it's not normal. It's kind of normal to us, but it's it's not really normal. I'm going to interrupt Debs here for a second because her reference to things not being normal sparked something in my mind. It's funny how we can get used to things that aren't as they should be. Throughout the pandemic, we've heard the phrase, the new normal, a lot. And I think it was a way of coping with the fact that our lives have not been what they should have been since 2020 began. But anyway, I, I cut some of our conversation out here for the sake of time. But Debs explained that so many systems in the lives of people in Northern Ireland are intentionally created to keep Catholics and Protestants separate. Their education is segregated, their public housing is segregated, and just so much more. The newspapers they read, the sports they play. She said that it pops up in all sorts of things. So let's get back. Let me ask you kind of a personal question, and you could kind of lead into your thoughts on forgiveness and reconciliation, because you, you know, shared with us email wise that that your heart would lean more towards reconciliation, reconciliation than the word forgiveness. But um, so you and I met and we ended up in the Tully Carnet neighborhood, Protestant, uh, a bit rough at times during the troubles, but fine when we were there. I just remember those 25 American kids that, that came over having such a great time getting to know all the kids from Tully Carnet. And one of the things that you set up was that we would go to a Catholic youth center. And so our kids are blended with the kids from Tully Carnet in the band that I was in. And everybody's laughing and giggling and doing whatever, you know, because they were all friends by this point. But the second we crossed that line that we were in Catholic territory, the Tully Carnet kids just went silent. And you could tell they were stressed um, because we were pushing them. It was like, oh, yeah, we're going to go do this and just it was a good thing in our conversations and all that but the second they crossed that line into catholic territory moving into something that they didn't feel was safe it was really hard for them and i saw that can you explain the line the safety issue the you know what happens to people when they were not with their kind so to speak um, you know, so many things happened. There were horrendous atrocities and it was a dirty war. People, um, you know, shot on their way to work right. um, by snipers. 
there were uh, or you know, bombs like, uh, under their car as they were going to work. Also, yeah, yeah, absolutely. And um, like there, there were there were building contractors who were you know had doing jobs for security services, and and they were then seen as legitimate targets, um, and they would have been attacked or killed or bombed or whatever. So um, it, it creates kind of so much fear, you know, so kids whose grandfathers were, were shot or whatever, like a, a friend of mine, his his grandfather was shot by the, the British army um, and he was opening up the shop. There was a, a, you know, a prison guard who was out checking underneath his car um, for um, to check for bombs and you know telling his three-year-old daughter that you know they have to make sure there's no cats under the car um, and he gets taken out and shot by by the IRA um, mm. and um, you, you know all, all of these things that you know there were people who were used as human bombs so it, it creates a huge amount of, of fear um, so family story is passed from generation to generation yeah. And as much as the younger generation says, I want to live in peace with everybody, they have their family story also. Yeah. That kind of confuses that. Because of of memory and um how how memory is is handled and that the pain of that and how it could still be could still be felt still splits the village, you know, so uh you know um you know certain pubs protestants would go to certain pubs catholics would go to certain shops you know that kind of thing right um and so we are like we, we are becoming much more diverse now and young people say that too it is definitely becoming more um mixed there is there is far more mixing but there is still um there are still what I would call kind of structural or systemic factors um, which sustain division. And so our political system, as, as good as it has to be in terms of, you know, having power sharing government and coalition kind of approach to government, right. um, it also maintains the division because it then becomes about, well, as long as we can be, if we can be equal but separate. So as long as you, I get what you get and you get what I get, then it, it kind of sustains um, things as they are and it doesn't actually. So that still creates division. Yeah. Yeah. So there the actually 2015, there was a report done by Deloitte that estimated that the cost of division here on an annual basis is 1.5 billion pounds. Wow. And that's kind of in terms of how you know, a lot of services get duplicated um, and also, you know, additional kind of costs around policing and, and that kind of thing. Mm. So, um, so yeah, like the, the Good Friday Agreement came in, in 1998 and that was incredible. Because I remember when I was growing up, I didn't think I would see an end to the conflict. Right. Like, I just like I remember even as a student um, kind of thinking, like, when is this when is this going to end? This is impossible. Um, and the reality was that all of the people involved um, 
perpetrators and victims alike knew that this couldn't go on. Like it was a stalemate. Nobody was winning this thing. Um, and in, so in some ways, so, some people would describe the Good Friday Agreement of 1998 as a kind of a gentleman's agreement. Now, it was pretty radical. It, like it, it set out, it created the open border. It legitimised, you know, if you want to be British, you can be British. If you want to be Irish, you can be Irish. Yeah. Um, so um, you're not an overly emotional person on the outside. Uh, and you got emotional when you were talking about the Good Friday. And number one, this is the part you might not want to go, because I always think that you're still 30. Um, and you might not be because I've known you a while, but um, how old were you in 98? And can you describe a little bit more about that emotion you were feeling when you, when you talked about it? Um, yeah, it always catches me off, off guard. Um, and I find when I'm talking about this kind of topic with people who are not from here, that's when I get emotional. Yeah. And I don't get emotional with people here <laughs> um so uh i don't really know what that says but um i had just finished my university or was about to finish my university degree and my undergraduate in 1998 um and actually i have changed uh, a huge amount um in those you know 20 plus years at that time, I would have been unionist, um, kind of mo moderate unionist, but certainly kind of British. And I am not a unionist any longer. And so I, I, I would be going against the grain in my family. Okay. Um, and it, in terms of where I grew up and, and my background uh, and a lot of those things. So, uh, and in a sense, you know, uh, there are more people now who are, not identifying either as as nationalist or, or unionist you know that that is a demographic that is cheap you know it is changing um i i really care <laughs> i care about this place and i made a deliberate choice I, I studied in scotland um and i i made a very conscious choice that i would come back home because i wanted to make things better so the the good friday agreement was seismic um, and it did come out there was a referendum at the at the time I think it was maybe 72 percent in favor of saying yes to that agreement and that was really incredible right. uh, to, to get that level um, it was a it was a high turnout and to get that level of support was really phenomenal but at the same time it was it was only ever the beginning as you're talking so much reminds me of the racism and political climate in the States right now. It's crazy how similar these things are, honestly. Racial justice and in terms of the divide here, all of these divides are constructs. Mm -hmm. um, so, um, you know, race is an invention mm -hmm. um, and it's, you know, deliberate to divide people. And in the same way here, um, there are unionist loyalist and nationalist Republican communities, which have far more in common than um, 
than the kind of political identities that 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 separate them in terms of of economics and in terms of you know broader kind of social justice kind of issues so I think a lot of these divisions can be you know divide and conquer um it's a classic colonial strategy um you know if you divide people well then you can maintain power and control um and I suppose that's why any ways in which we can build relationships that transcend those divisions um, is not only you know a spiritual act it's also a political act and it's a it's ultimately a deeply human act and, and it's it's hard because there are so many things that that get in the way of it and all these things serve to kind of make us want to atomize and split apart um, and that's not what we're made for. Deb, so where do you feel like things are at? Is forgiveness and reconciliation happening? Are, are things getting better? You know, so all of this to me is incredibly important in terms of reconciliation because um, we, we are still trying to do that work and that work is certainly not complete. Um, and I think it's really only in the early stages so there's, there's a, a man called John Paul Lederach who would be very highly regarded in terms of his piecework. Um, he has a Mennonite background um, and he has done quite a lot of work here. He'd be a bit of a kind of a peace guru. Um, and he talks about how however long a conflict has, last, has lasted, it's going to take at least that much and the same amount again. To kind of like process it and kind of come out the other side. Yeah. Um, and one of the things he also talks about is that reconciliation is about truth, mercy, justice, and peace. Mm. And he draws directly from scripture in that. And so I get a little bit uncomfortable with the term forgiveness at times because it, it's so often used in like you know Christian circles and forgive and you shall be forgiven and you know all these kind of different things and and I guess for me it's um it's it's not something that can be done lightly it's it's not a glib thing and in some ways it's maybe been an overused term and it's incredibly important but I suppose I feel like I can't dictate to anyone how that's going to happen or how it should happen and, and this is exactly what we're dealing with at the moment. So just a couple of weeks ago, um, an inquest, a public inquest finished, and it took two years. And it related to the killings of 10 people in a part of Belfast over a period of three days in, I think it was 1972. Uh, but 10 people were, were shot. And at least nine of those people were shot by the British Army. One of those people who was shot was a priest and 57 children were orphaned in the course of those three days. And at the time, the British Army said that those people who were shot and killed were members of the IRA. And just two weeks ago, the inquest, the coroner ruled that those people were entirely innocent. Yeah. So, so that was 40 some years, 50 years then? 50 years of, of campaigning. Now, for them, they still want to find out why they, their relatives were shot. So 
they're in a process of trying to find out truth. But yeah, like if you think, you know, if you just take it down to the level of those 10 families and what they've gone through. um, And there is so much in that. There is so much, you know, trauma and and loss and hurt and pain and anguish and all the rest of it. And the 50 years that's just so hard to figure out memory and truth and yeah still yeah. around and who who you can ask questions of and all of that all uh, of that yeah so you know this is before our time but um that we met but i was with a group that was in oma uh one week after the bombing there which i think was 97 98 maybe 98 yeah and so that was that small village that a lot of kids catholic and protestant doing back to school shopping and they were told the bomb was at the top of the hill and it was at the bottom so we lost a lot of sweet children that day and some of their parents and uh i felt unclean this is hard to describe i felt like it was a sacred place and I, I didn't belong there because it was so raw and you could still smell the explosion, the effects of the, the whatever you still, you, you smelt the burning, the car was right there and there was just a chain link fence. And then um, we were brought to the city council where the council members and priests and pastors were meeting for the first time. I remember very distinctly that it was the Catholic priest who stood up and said, please forgive me. I was a part of this bombing because I didn't preach against this kind of thing. And I allowed this division to happen. So he's asking for forgiveness personally to people that he would have seen in that small, beautiful little community. Um, you know, I felt like an interloper of, of some kind, but, but I was so thankful that I was there because it was so amazing to experience because after he stood up, then somebody else stood up and somebody else stood up and, Nobody was pointing fingers. They were all taking responsibility for causing division. So how would you describe moving from using forgiveness in that simple way to the fullness of reconciliation? Well, I'll I'll start with two things. And I I want to kind of respond to to what you were saying about feeling like you're an interloper. Um, And I'll say by telling a story that in 2011, I got the chance to go to Rwanda um, and I visited um, in Kigali in in the capital city. There's a a memorial center to um, um, kind of remembering those who died as a result of the genocide. Um, And I remember kind of walking around. There's these beautiful gardens outside. And all of a sudden I heard this keening. And there had been a, a, a group of people who'd arrived at the center just, just after me and they were going through the inner kind of building around the exhibits. Um, and this woman started crying and, and wailing and it was, it was a caning. Um, and then 
I walked past a doorway and saw her collapsed on the ground. Uh, and there was an, an attendant with her. And then a little while later, as I moved into the inner part of the, the centre, um, I noticed this um, tall pile of mattresses. And it dawned on me that this happens a lot, that people, you know, um, victims or survivors groups and their relatives, they come to this place and the enormity of what, you know, it's a, it's a trigger, it, it, uh, and they collapse with grief. Right. And at that moment in time, I felt like an intruder. Okay. And I thought I should not be here. You know, I didn't, I know nothing of what happened here. I don't know how this feels, all of that. But, um, but I was weeping. Um, and I, you know, like I, I remembered those words, you know, weep with those who weep and rejoice with those who rejoice. And that is, it's a deep part of our, um, human connection and more than ever I am more than ever I am committed to working for the common good and kind of recognizing that our fate is 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 bound together um, and so I think it is important that we weep with those who weep and and that's an expression of our humanity with, with each other right. so that's one thing, and I suppose it, it's it's tied into forgiveness because I I heard someone recently talk about forgiveness as a meeting place. Um, as a meeting place. A meeting place, yeah. Okay. And so the way that so um, there's a podcast which um, your listeners might be interested in called Guardians of the Flame, and they interview a man called Brian Keenan, who is originally. Okay. They only want to listen to our podcast. Though. Well, uh, yeah, I know, I know. But, you know, just in case they run run out of, you know. <laughs> so tell me the name of the podcast again. Because <laughs> I don't want that to get lost in my silliness. <laughs> um, it's called Guardians of the Flame. And there's an episode where they interview a man called Brian Keenan. And Brian uh, Keenan uh, came from Belfast, but he spent some time in Lebanon and he was taken hostage and he spent four and a half years in captivity. <sighs> and this was the late 80s, early 90s. Yeah. Was he so, a journalist? No, he wasn't. He was teaching at a university. Okay. Um, but there were journalists. He was in captivity with some other journalists. So you may have heard of Terry Waite and John. Terry, McCall. yes. Yeah, yes. yeah, yeah. So he, he was in captivity with, with um, John McCarthy. Um, they, they shared a cell at one point. Um, and Brian Keenan's book is called An Evil Cradling. And it's one of the most phenomenal books I've ever read in my entire life. Um, but he spoke about forgiveness in this podcast interview. Um, and he talked about how for the, the perpetrator, who, who needs forgiveness. Um, it's the person who has the for, forgiving to do who can set that person free. Mm. So he, he spoke about it really movingly. Um, and he said that if, if he was to meet one of his captors, he would say, sit down and have a coffee and tell me what was going through your mind when you did those things to me. Mm. because I think I know and I can set you free 
And so he talked about um, a meeting place where the, the pain of the, the person who needs forgiveness mirrors the pain of the person who has the forgiving to do. Right. And, and I find that absolutely fascinating. Now, there's, I think there's yeah. loads of different ways that you can look at forgiveness. And oh, yeah, that's, but that's beautiful. Yeah. And that's coming from the person who's been harmed not pointing the finger at the one that harmed them, but yes. saying, let's meet. I think that's beautiful. Yeah. And let's, let's talk about both our pain. So when we meet in that place, really, we can both be healed, correct? Yeah, that's exactly it. Yeah. yeah, that's beautiful. Beautiful. Well, Debs, you know I love you. Any other specific thoughts? Any parting words of wisdom? I'm not being funny here. I'm being serious. <laughs> I know you. <laughs> I have to clarify that sometimes with folks. <laughs> no, no, I think I've expanded all my wisdom, if there was any wisdom in any of that. So, yeah, no. Um, yeah. So let's end with something fun. Why don't you share with people why once the virus is, you know, at a place where people can travel like that, what's the great thing about coming over? Oh, Tourist, Tourist Bureau. There's Dunless Castle, Romantic Castle that's crumbling into the sea. Um, Giants Causeway where, you know, the giants fought it out. So there's plenty of stuff outdoors. Um, We've got festivals. There's a lot of good surfing and fishing and golf and, you know, um, that there's a, a lot of things that will appeal to a lot of different people. So, yeah, yep. all over the place. It's a beautiful place. And Thanks. you can drive on whatever side of the road you want to. On the <laughs> of the road because there's oh, so narrow, it doesn't matter. I just remember being terrified being on the other side of the road that didn't feel like the other side of the road because the road was so narrow anyway <laughs> and wanting to scream a little bit, but it was fun. Yeah. If, if you're a nervous driver, don't, don't hire a car for the sake <laughs> of yourself and, and everyone else. That's, um, that's probably my advice. So uh -oh. yeah. yeah. <laughs> I loved driving over there. It was really fun, but it was helpful that someone was like, okay, when you're, when you're driving, steer closer to traffic as opposed to the parked cars because the traffic can move away from you if you're getting too close to them <laughs> oh, like, that's such a good idea yeah. it is a good uh, idea yeah <laughs> i did really well the only problem i had was the rotaries or what do you call them over there oh, roundabouts or roundabouts yeah yeah Oh, well, I have to say that four-way stops always kind of made me nervous anytime I've driven in the States. So, um, yeah, kind of had to keep the wits about Right. Me. Who goes first and, right, all of that. Do I go? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> no, I feel it. I live here. Yeah. <laughs> uh, okay. Well, we can, we don't need to take up any more of your time, but Debs, it was such 
a privilege to meet you. I loved listening to you guys talk and you're definitely one of my new heroes. Um, next time my husband and I come over, we're going to come uh, visit you if we can. Yes, do, please do. Just uh, give me a shout. So, yeah. Sounds good. She lives in a wee cottage in Hollywood. <laughs> Hollywood in Belfast, not in L.A. Only in my dreams. <laughs> Thanks for joining us for A Different Kind of Walk. Our special guest was Debs Irwin, and she is also part of the Coromela community in Northern Ireland, which is an ecumenical peace and reconciliation community. If you want to learn more about it, go to www.coryemela.org. Come back next time to find out who our next special guest will be on the topic of forgiveness, reconciliation, and joy. Until next time. Live well.